All right. Well, tonight we are jumping into Daniel. Last week we started our series, Faithful in Exile. And tonight we're actually going to jump into chapter one. I want to spend some time there. So if you have your Bibles, you want to open up there. We'll, we'll be spending most of our time there. And last, like I said last week, for most of us, I think as we think of the book of Daniel, we probably think of the like fantastic stories, the Sunday school stories of the lions and the furnaces and, and all that stuff, the stuff you see on, on felt boards, yeah? Or veggie tales. Um, or perhaps you're really into kind of the weird apocalyptic stuff at the end. Weird. The apocalyptic stuff on the second half of the book, uh, which is also part of what I think most people know this book for. But as we study this book, as we spend the next several, really several months walking through this book, our goal is not just to know the stories. Our goal is not to uh, get a better understanding of the history even. Our goal is to see why this book is in our Bible. Why is it there? And then how has this book and how can this book shape us as a community in the way that we follow Jesus? That's what we're looking for. We're calling this series Faithful in Exile. We're going to explore what it looks like to be a faithful presence in the midst of a culture and a climate that is working in opposition to our discipleship to Jesus. Now, in one sense, I was thinking about this this week, in one sense, we are not exiles here. Nobody's forcing you to stay here in California, right? In one sense, we're here because we want to be here. And honestly, I was thinking about this this week. I went mountain biking twice in Annadale. It's a pretty amazing place to live. There's a lot of good here. And yet, in a very real way, we are exiles here. For all the good and the things that we love and enjoy about our community, our state, our region, there's a very real sense that we are not at home here. Our values do not often line up with that of the people around us. Our allegiances do not align up with those of our neighbors and our friends. Our narratives, the driving stories that, that shape who we are and how we think, it often doesn't align with our neighbors, our coworkers, and our friends around us. And as we jump into chapter one, uh, before we get in there, I really wanted to just remind us real quick of what we looked at last week, um, if you weren't here. We opened up this series by looking at Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29 was a letter that Jeremiah wrote to the, those who were in exile, encouraging them, giving them instruction on how they're to live in this new context. Many of them were camped outside of the city, unwilling to go into the city of Babylon. So Jeremiah writes a letter and gives them instruction on what they're to do. 
And if we are to be found faithful as exiles in our community, as those who are living as strangers, as Peter would call it, I think this framework that he lays out in Jeremiah is very important for us to think through. John Tyson, in his book called Creative Minority, I had it last week, some of you guys have read it, Um, he walks through Daniel and sets out this idea called a creative minority. And this is how he defines it. A creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together in a living network of persons who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of the world. The reality is this is not an easy time or place. It's not a conducive environment for your discipleship. But this is where the Lord has you, at least for the time being. So what does it look like? This is the questions I asked last week. What does it look like to be a faithful presence and to practice the way of Jesus in this environment? What does it look like? How do we disciple our kids in this climate, in this environment? How do we go about business? How do you go about doing business in the workplace? How do we be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did in the midst of options? The church is called to be a colony of the kingdom in a country that looks completely different. We are called to pray and to work and to see God's kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We very much, I think like these in exile, are to be fully involved in the life of our city and our county and our culture working in it and praying for it and praying and hoping for the good of our city. And yet at the same time, we are not to adopt the cultural ideas ideas or convictions or narratives. We're not to lose our distinctive identity of what makes us a unique people of God. And therein lies the challenge. How do we live among and pray for the good of our city? work for the good of our city, and yet not let the city shape us. And this is what Daniel and his friends do. This is where we see them in this chapter. They are very much in Babylon. They dressed Babylonian. They took on Babylonian names. They were in the culture. They were in this three-year intensive School of Babylon. The entire goal was to shape them and form them into the image of the ideal Babylonian. And yet they very much held on to their uniqueness in their following of Yahweh. That's what we see through the rest of this book is these stories of these Daniel and his friends faithfully, when push comes to shove, they're serving Yahweh. 
That's what this book has taught us throughout its existence in our Bible. That's what it's there for throughout the centuries. This book has given us hope and taught us what it looks like to live faithful in exile. How do we live faithfully to Jesus in a culture that has competing visions, competing ideals, competing pictures of human flourishing, competing visions of freedom and the good life? How do we live for Jesus in that context? Let's jump into our passage here, starting in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them into the, into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Sometimes when we read passages like this, and we're, tonight we're just going to walk through this whole chapter. Sometimes when we read passages like that that I just read, those three introductory verses, it's easy to just kind of gloss over them as a piece of history. It's easy to just pass through that. But here's what we know from just those three verses. And cross-referencing them to the rest of our Bible. We know that this is the first wave, the first wave in multiple phases of exile. We know it took place in the third year of King Jehoiakim. This was a very busy time in the ancient Near East. The geopolitical scene was kind of in an upheaval. The Assyrian Empire who was kind of reigning supreme, was fading. And what we have happen is the Egyptians are vying for power and they're trying to step in and seize on the failing Assyrians. And meanwhile, there's a young king in Babylon. All the while, while all that's developing, what's happening in Judah? Anybody know? Backstory. Who's king before Jehoiakim? Well, two kings, I guess, before. Josiah. Judah is in, in the midst of somewhat of a revival. Big moves were happening. King Josiah goes out in battle to fight Pharaoh, and he dies. Pharaoh then installs a new king to serve him. That's Jehoiakim. Josiah was a good king. Jehoiakim, not even close. And all the while, there's this young, energetic Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar comes and swiftly pushes Egypt out of the way. Eventually, Nebuchadnezzar will conquer Judah and in a series of exiles will send the people away. 
What we see here in these opening verses of chapter 1 is a brief telling of this story. It's really brief. And here's what I want to point out. The way this story is told here is not the way it would have been told in the Babylonian times. Right? If this was the Babylonian times, it would have been a completely different narrative. The story would have played out different. The story would have been maybe not even front front page news. This is a little kingdom, Judah. There's not much at play here in the scheme of things. It would have read something like this. King Nebuchadnezzar destroys this little nation, Judah. They thought they could defy us, but they couldn't. Yahweh was not able to stop Marduk. See, we've taken some of his stuff and we put it in Marduk's temple. That's how it would have read. Our king is better. Our God is better. We destroyed them. But that's not how Daniel sees the story. That's not how the story is told. And for sure, that is not how God sees the story. Daniel says, the Lord gave them over. God did it. Nebuchadnezzar thinks that he's all-powerful. Babylon thinks that it has the power and the authority to do as it pleases. But Daniel says, no, he is only a tool in the hand of Yahweh. He is only a tool in the hand of the God of gods. What confidence this must have given these exiles. God is in control. God did it. Imagine Daniel and his friends being hauled off to Babylon some, sometime 605 B.C. They're far from Judah. They're far from everything that was near and dear to them. They, they're in a new place, a new environment. They're young teenagers probably. They might have wondered, what has not changed? Everything is different. But these three verses, this introduction shouts something, God has not changed. He is still in control. He is still sovereign, seated on his throne. Daniel 1, three times will say that the Lord gave, the Lord gave, the Lord gave. Very intentional. It's God who did it. Verse 3. And I'm not going to do any better with the pronunciation of this name, so we'll call him Ash. <clears throat> then the king commanded Ash, the, ki- the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youth without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace, to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. He brings these boys 
these young men out of Judah, and he puts them in this immersive school of University of Babylon to teach them the ways of the Babylonians, to form in them the image of what it looks like to be a good, subservient Babylonian. Verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of their food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank, the best of the best. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. And among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, Azariah he called Abednego. Now, we could get into a lot of detail on those names and why those names. The very point here, though, is that that three-year immersion program, it's all about completely changing their identity down to their names. All of their names had to do with service of Yahweh. And they're all changed to Babylonian names about serving their gods and their policies and their people. The whole point of this three-year project was to completely change their identity. So, sort of a boot camp. And if you think about young teenagers, early adolescents, they're pretty formative, right? That's a pretty formative time for them. Anybody with young teenagers? Yep. They're pretty impressionable people in our society, but apparently not these guys. Something was different about these four. And I think we see in verse 8, which I think is a huge hinge verse and one of the key verses for this entire book. I'm sure we'll come back to this multiple times. Verse 8, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Daniel resolved. So Daniel and his friends, they grew up during the time of the latter part of this great revival that had happened in Judah, where Josiah had discovered the law again, and there was fresh interest in the scripture. They were shaped by that. Daniel Helm, in his commentary on Daniel, he said this, and it stood out to me. He said this, the kind of resolve we see in Daniel and his friends comes from a rich, fertile soil of a childhood under the great and godly king. People of resolve are fashioned. They are made. 
They rarely simply appear. This prompts us to ask ourselves, what kind of young people are we raising in our churches? Let us realize or be reminded of the truth that raising children for God is one of the most important businesses done on earth. And all Christians, whether parents or not, are involved in this business because we are all part of the church family and we need a generation of Daniels, so let us commit to growing them. Amen. Daniel resolved. For me, this this brings up images of reading about the early Jonathan Edwards, even in his early development, young 20s, he writes these 70 resolutions. Anybody read them? 70 resolutions. Jonathan Edwards, Google it tonight. Young man, convinced, resolved, principles. This is how I'll live. Every move of God throughout history has been marked by young people like this. So the question is, what's wrong with the king's food? What's wrong with the king's wine? A lot of people have a lot of different ideas. Bible Project hinted it it possibly isn't kosher. I don't necessarily buy that because wine was kosher. I think it I think this has more to do with drawing a line in the sand. It had to be drawn somewhere. They have new names, new identities, new homes, new clothes, new teachers, new books, not the food. They had to draw a line somewhere. They had to say this far and no more. We can assimilate and we can learn the culture, we can dress the dress, we can take your names, but not this. This is too far. Not so much saying that food, it's the food that defiles them, it's the total acceptance of this program of assimilation. At this point, the Babylonian government is exercising its control, its total and complete control over every aspect of their lives. They have very little means of resistance, very little means of saying, in this we will not assimilate. They seize on one of the very few areas that they can still exercise choice as an opportunity to preserve their distinct identity. Daniel draws a line and thus avoids total assimilation. In other words, eating the palace provision, at least in Daniel's way of thinking, it would entail a compromise of faith that was all-encompassing. Somehow that was different than taking on the name or learning the culture or serving the Babylonian court. Something was different. We must remember Israel's 
take on its own food laws, its own dietary restrictions. It was destined and designed in part to highlight and to preserve their distinctiveness as God's people over and against all the other people. Their practice of their food regulations was designed to make them distinct and unique amongst the people. And so for Daniel, okay, I'll take the clothes, I'll take the language, I'll take the name, but you're not going to fully have me. I'm still going to be distinct among you. But it's really important to see how Daniel rejected the king's food. How did he do it? I think we should take note of Daniel's spirit and his tone in the way he declined the king's food. A person of principle and deep moral conviction sorry, who steadfastly refuses to compromise does not have to be rude or mean. You can be holy and given to God without being obnoxious. You don't have to be angry and mean. Your disagreement will go further ultimately if you are respectful and kind like we see here with Daniel. Verse 9 and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Verse 9 through 13, Daniel wisely offers a test. He says, we're not going to do it. The chief of the eunuchs says, hey, if you don't eat, I'm going to lose my head. The king will kill me. And Daniel, I don't want that to happen. I'm paraphrasing here. I don't want that to happen. I'm not asking for you to take to lose your head on my behalf. But let's test it. Let's give it 10 days. We'll eat only veggies for 10 days and test us and see if we're unhealthy. And they do just that. They test them for 10 days. Jump down to verse 15. And you know this is a miracle. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. It's just vegetables. Then all the other youth who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and their wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So how'd they do? They offered a test. They're in this school of Babylon. They're being taught the way of the Babylonians. Verse 17. As for these four youth, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar, 
the king spoke with them, and among them, among all of them, none were found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters who were in his kingdom. What this tells us is that while the whole world thought that Nebuchadnezzar was king and he was in, he was in charge, quietly, subversively even, behind the scenes, God is working. God knows what he's doing. He does what he pleases and Babylon is only a tool in his hand. This, he is going to put his people right there in the court. His word will be exalted before the king of Babylon. This also implies that Daniel and the boys, they gave themselves diligently to their education. They gave themselves diligently to their studies and they put work in for the service of their captors. They took the words of Jeremiah seriously. Remind you again, Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7 says this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses to live in them, plant gardens and eat of their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives and <clears throat> for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. They worked. They prayed for Babylon. They settled there. And God's goodness attends, surrounds, protects, and ultimately prospers the work of their hands. And this explains their success throughout the rest of this book. God was with them, even in Babylon. So at the end of this prescribed indoctrination, whatever we want to call it, they far outshine all the others. Which is kind of crazy, actually, because these good Hebrew boys must have known all the Babylonian incantations and magic and all the spells, all the stuff also. They didn't serve it, but they knew it. Verse 20. Verse 20 ratchets their commendation up a notch with some hyperbole here. Found them ten times better than all of the magicians and conjurers. 
If we take a step back and we look at Daniel 1 as a whole, I think the irony is kind of amusing. At the beginning of the story, we find captives from this destroyed, subjugated kingdom. But here, these very captives stand before the head of the palace in service. In verses 1 and 2, we read of Judah's shameful defeat, including the pillaging of the temple. While here, we meet the victory of Judah's captives as they serve next to the throne. And they rule the world power. Along, well, they serve along the world power. Fascinating irony. The losers have, by the twist of God's province, become the winners ten times better than all the others. This is God's subversive work amongst the people. And yet we, we should be careful to note that God doesn't work this way simply to show how clever he is. Rather, he seems to be intending to position his people towards a providential end for the good of Babylon, which is what Jeremiah said that they were to pray for. So finally, we come to verse 21. This whole chapter has been marked by that subversive context of God giving, God giving, God's in control, he's sovereign. You come to this verse, the Hebrew, I think it's only seven words. Verse 21, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Again, it's easy to just pass this one over as you're reading through this. Sounds harmless enough. In verse 21, the writer here <clears throat> is obviously hitting the fast-forward button. We're now telescoping and we're looking forward in history. Who is King Cyrus? He was the king of Persia who would begin reigning in 539 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar then has passed from the scene, ultimately Kings and empires always do. But what of Babylon, the great kingdom who destroyed Judah and took them off into captivity? What, what about Babylon? It fell. To whom? To Cyrus. To the Persians. Do you see it? Mighty Babylon of verse 1 and 2. This great kingdom who destroyed and brought the elements from the temple. It has fallen. But who continues? God's servant Daniel is there. Outlasting this great kingdom. At the time, Daniel would have been over 80 years old the reign of Cyrus. For sure, this ultimately is what the, <clears throat> the whole book of Daniel is about. 
For sure, this is about Daniel, but I think also this is a more of is a bit of a parable for us. All kingdoms rise and fall, but God remains and he is faithful. God's purpose and his people go on. This text points, I think, to Isaiah's praise of Yahweh in Isaiah 40, verse 23. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely have their stems stems taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom will they compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Empires will rise and fall. People will be carried off into exile. There'll be good times and bad times. What Daniel tells us is that we can still be faithful to what God has called us to do. We can practice the way of Jesus in that context. We can disciple our children in the way that they're to go in that context. God is still there, and he's still faithful. He's still good. He's still kind. He's still working. So where does that leave us? We are called to be a faithful presence in a context that is not making that easy. We are called to be disciples of Jesus and to make disciples of Jesus. I think we need to remember the underlying message in this whole chapter, <clears throat> this whole book. Our God reigns. He is enthroned above every other beastly kingdom. Behind, underneath the surface, at all times, he is working to accomplish his will on the earth. He is active. And it is our job as followers of Jesus to pray, to seek the good of our city that the Lord has put us in, to to ask God to move on behalf of our city and to learn and to follow in the way of Jesus, to practice that. We pray, as Jesus taught us, for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. I was thinking about that this morning, praying for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think often we flip that, and we want our will on earth to be accomplished in heaven. I think often that's how we pray. We want God's will to be conformed into what we want. And this is this picture we have of Daniel. He's in Babylon. Nothing's the same. Everything is different. Not my will, God. Your will be done on earth. Your kingdom come. Your will be done 
The question is, what is God doing? Where is he moving? How can we partner with him? How can we serve alongside him? Where can we see his activity? Are we asking those questions? How can we partner with him to reach our city, to reach our workplace? Or who, in, who is in our life? Maybe it's your kids, young people around you, newer Christians. Who is in your life that you can help form resolve and fortitude to practice the way of Jesus amongst options? That's what discipleship is to form in them the image of Christ. I'm going to pray. The worship team can come back up. Father, I thank you that you are reigning You reign supreme. You are enthroned and unmoved. That when everything seems to be falling down around us and the world seems to be going crazy, you are sovereign. God, I pray that you would help give us the fortitude and the resolve of Daniel. that we would purpose in our heart not to defile ourselves, that we would early on make that decision before the options are in front of us, that we would choose, we would resolve, we would commit ourselves to not defile ourselves. Help us to train our children in that way, Help us to disciple others in that way. 